From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Grief is all around us, exacerbated by the pandemic. Today, what that looks like for children, I'll speak with a counselor at the Denver Hospice, which is expanding its space for young people dealing with loss. Then, a story about something that didn't happen, mercifully. There was not a murder hornet sighting in Colorado, and the chances are very low. We'll explain why and introduce you to wasps you'll love. Wasps do us a huge favor. They prey on pest insects and even the pesky yellow jackets. Um, They're actually scavengers. And later, a neighborhood at the heart of Colorado Springs is gone. But like the people who lived there, not forgotten. They ran the trains. They built the buildings. They hauled the trash. These are people that literally built Colorado Springs. Sponsoring CPR gives businesses and organizations several ways to reach Coloradans. CPR is here to help you expand or rebuild your business. Learn about sponsoring CPR on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Children grieve differently than adults. As our first guest puts it, kids are touch and go. They can think about sad things and then go play and have fun. It's partly why Denver Hospice has designed a new outdoor space for play and art therapy, which made us want to have a conversation about how young people experience loss. That's as the pandemic adds an additional layer of grief. Sue Farnsworth is a counselor with Footprints, which works with three to 17-year-olds whose loved ones are in hospice care or who've recently died. And Sue, thank you for being with us. No problem, Ryan. Good morning. I was intrigued by this idea of touch-and-go grief. Just say a little bit more about that, will you? Well, I think it's important to understand that kids can't be sad all the time, that they're naturally going to be a little more buoyant. And it's important that we allow them time to process and yet understand when they just need to go and be kids. And that's a real important part. Do you find that there's an expectation that kids should always be sad then? Um, No, but I think that's an expectation that, that the adults in their life might have because that may be the way that they're feeling as well. So we have to explain to the adults that it's really okay. They're still processing. They may just not show it all the time. I am fascinated by the fact that you sometimes play act funerals ahead of time. Will you tell me about that? Well, just because uh, it helps kids to understand what's going to be going on, or maybe they've just come from a funeral. Um, So there have been several cases where we take a a stuffed animal or something, and it's usually obviously the child's direction that they'd like to do that. But they reenact what they've had, and we talk about it while they're doing that. And and it's an important part of them understanding. Sometimes it takes several times, especially with very young children, for them to process what it really means, what death really does mean. Well, that raises an important point. You can go through the motions, play acting a funeral, but, you know, looming in the background is what death is. And Mm -hmm. I imagine how you explain that to, say, a three-year-old on the younger end of the spectrum or a 17-year-old, those things must differ. Absolutely. I think that the um, understanding of the finality of death uh, younger than maybe five or six is, is a difficult concept, to be sure. Uh, ironically, sometimes we talk about uh, pets in that same way so that they can understand. Sometimes children think it's more like sleeping or they just went away and families uh, try to not 
always expose them to the sad piece of of someone has actually died. And it's sometimes our job to help them to realize, yes, uh, death means you're not breathing, you're not eating anymore. And, uh, and then they can try to understand a little deeper about that they won't be seeing their loved one anymore. Oh, there's an elegance to the facts there, just to say this means you don't eat anymore. It means you don't sleep anymore. Yeah. That actually helps me as you, <laughs> as, as you explain well, it. Exactly. I think that uh, kids have to think in concrete terms for sure. And it's, uh, it's, it's those sorts of things that they think about. You mean we don't need to put, you know, food in for them and, and things like that. So we do have some, some interesting conversations with kids, but, uh, but they're developing so quickly that it's so important that they do uh, understand and process this grief uh, because um, we don't want them to get stuck in a developmental stage. We see a lot of regression as well with um, grieving children. And uh, we need to tell their parents about that to, to expect that in some cases. Hmm. And are there longer term effects of not having properly dealt with grief? I mean, that spill into even adulthood? Yes. Oh, absolutely. I, I do share a story about my own mother uh, in part because I think it helps people to understand she lost her mom when she was 16 and was expected to be uh, in the home uh, cooking the meals and shopping and for her father and her older brother. Uh, and then she went on to college and married my father, et cetera. But uh, when she was 40, she went through a pretty deep depression and through counseling, they really discovered that she had never truly been allowed to grieve for her mother. Hmm. And so it's something that we don't get to skip over. Sometimes people get so busy, they think that, oh, I'm just, I, I'll, I'll just breeze through this. But no, it's, it's such an important piece to process. And hopefully at the time that you have that loss, um, but because she was able to at least realize that's what happened, um, then she definitely improved. In a way, you are delaying the inevitable. It, right. it has to be reconciled with at some point. You, you mm -hmm. made a reference to, I think, a family's pretty natural inclination to want to shield children to some mm -hmm. extent. And exactly. I imagine there's a balance there. Well, exactly. Um, yeah. We don't like to have our kids be sad. Um, but I also tell parents that there's a huge amount of resiliency that can come out of uh, processing this grief. And a lot of kids uh, use that to bounce forward and to have uh, resilient growth rather than uh, always feel that there was something that, that everyone was afraid to talk about. And, uh, and so they can really uh, have a lot of positive things that can come out of this tragedy to children. Oh, that feels like a really important message that this is opportunity as well for growth and for mm -hmm. a deepening of understanding. Mm -hmm. I mentioned in the introduction this new playground with yes. a space for kids to draw in chalk. There's a jumping area, a Zen garden. Paint, right. paint a picture of what a child might be going through with a loved one in hospice where they might use this playground. And, and maybe that can help us understand the kind of play therapy that you do. We like to call it, or I like to call it side-by-side, uh, -side, um, you know, talking. Uh, a lot of times, well, for, for one thing, a, a five or a six-year-old is not going to sit with you in a, in a uh, counseling room and just talk to you. Oh. We try to introduce fun things to do with them, whether it's clay or painting or uh, Legos even. Um, and as they're doing that, then we can just sort of sit side by side and we start just generally talking about how you're doing and do you know why you're here today and tell me how you're thinking about 
dad or whatever, whoever the loss was. And, and as kids do, depending on their um, attention spans, they might just be focusing on that and we're just talking and he's, they're not even realizing that we're doing some therapy together. And then when that sort of reaches its natural uh, ending point, they might just like to go outside and run around. We've got some beautiful logs that are installed in a lawn area. Like you said, there's a Zen garden with stones in it that they can jump on and just kind of walk around. And we're going to be having a, a growing area where kids can um, play in the garden a little bit and um, a, a shaded table area where, where they can do art outside as well. So they kind of take that break, that bouncing back break, and maybe we can sit out there and continue a conversation as well. I think of kids as uh, kinetic and, um, you know, kind of squirrely. And so you want to harness that and, and uh, bring that in a way to the counseling. Are, are there specific art projects that you have them engage in, I wonder? Absolutely. Sometimes we have the families, uh, usually in, in a second or third session, bring a picture of the loved one and then they get to make a picture frame. Uh, themselves, and then they can put the picture in that, and they can keep that in their room um, as a memory of uh, their their special person, we call it. Um, we also do lots of family portraits, draw a picture of the whole family, and it's interesting as a therapist to take a look at the way they portray the family. And uh, of course, the animals are always in there too. <laughs> what do you mean, how they portray the family? What have you seen? Well, sometimes uh, the loved one might be an angel, or whatever the family's spiritual tradition is. Um, sometimes they uh, they only put the people in it that are still with them in the family. More often than not, we get just a standard picture with everyone as they were, um, including uh, the special person. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking with Sue Farnsworth, who is a licensed clinical social worker, counselor with Footprints, which is connected to the Denver Hospice and works with 3- to 17-year-olds whose loved ones are in hospice care or who've recently died. The Denver Hospice has created this new space for young people, and we're using this as an opportunity to talk about grief in young people. You talked about a family's potential spiritual beliefs, and I imagine that you have a fine line to walk um, Mm -hmm. around explaining what death is and what happens after we die, right? I mean... It, it must be a common question for kids uh, to ask what, what happens. Is. Yeah, and you have to be careful, I imagine, right. about what beliefs you discuss. Talk about that, that walking that line. Well, exactly. And that's usually something uh, we have to deal with input uh, admission paperwork as well. And so there's usually a lot of questioning or, or at least a few questions that help us to understand. We certainly want to respect whatever spiritual tradition uh, the family comes from, and um, and we always let the child lead that discussion. If something does come up in counseling uh, that's appropriate uh, to mention to the parent in that way, uh, I'll always sort of say something, or, or uh, occasionally we'll do a balloon release, for example, and the child will write a message to their special person and release the balloon. We want to make sure that that's also appropriate for the family in whatever way they choose to uh, think about that particular aspect. Has the pandemic changed the nature of your work? Uh, it, it has to some degree, especially, of course, if it's been a COVID death. Um, hospice does see, of course, uh, people that are expected to pass away from COVID, but it's also a fine line uh, for us to be able to get in in, in a timely fashion. Um, uh, the hardest piece, I think, with COVID is 
that usually families aren't with their loved one uh, at time of death. Mm -hmm. And that that piece of closure, I think, is a very important one. And uh, unfortunately, we have to sometimes address, you know, what if you weren't with your your loved one and, and where are they now kind of a thing. The nature, of course, of the virus and hospital protocols mm-hmm. is that families are not able to be in the same room often as their loved ones. And mm-hmm. so, wow, talk about um, a challenge to then explain to a child that a loved one who went into the hospital maybe weeks prior that they haven't seen is now gone. I mean, that, that's a challenge. Absolutely it is. And that's also why sometimes what we do is we try to remember the person as they were and their their special memories. Tell me about the, the, the best time you had with, with your special person and, and what are the things that you do remember and the fun times. Because, of course, that's how we really want to remember and honor their loved one and not so much the last few days, which even in appearance, even when, if they were with them, they may not look like the person that they remember. Mm-hmm. When there is the choice to be present for someone's passing, do you think it's good for kids to be in the room of someone who's dying? Ryan, that's a really good question. Um, it really does depend. And I think that self-determination f- feature is real important for kids to make that decision if they really want to be there or not. And in the same way, if they want to go to the funeral or not, we always tell the families to make sure that that they ask the children whether they want to come or whether they don't want to come and let them feel like at least that's a little bit of empowering, even if they couldn't control the fact that that their loved one passed away. But if the answer is yes, I'd like to be there, either at the funeral or the bedside, is that a Mm -hmm. yes I should trust if it's coming from a 10-year-old? Again, it does depend on the age of the child. And I think that what we need to do is um, talk about expectations as well. Um, I've had families use uh, uh, words as a, as a key to say, I think I need to get out now or I, I need to just step out and they'll have like a plan B, for example. Mm. So um, I think that's a good way to think about it. If they think they want to go and then they're in there and they decide that it's just too much. Sue, I feel like we could talk for a very long time, but that's about all the time we have. Thank you so much for sharing your work with us. Thank you, Ryan, and thank you to all of our donors at the Denver Hospice that make those facilities possible. Grief counselor Sue Farnsworth, a licensed clinical social worker, she runs the Footprints program for the Denver Hospice, tending to the needs of 3- to 17-year-olds who are losing a loved one. If this were any other news outlet, I'd start this next story with something sensational, But that's just not our style, so I'm going to give away the surprise now. No, you did not see a murder hornet in Colorado, including you, Cody Lawson of Denver. Cody kindly emailed the newsroom with a photo of a big old wasp. He also sent it to the state agriculture department, thinking that he'd spotted a murder hornet. Again, he did not, which we confirmed with CSU Extension agent Lisa Mason. It is not. This is a pigeon tremex horntail wasp. It is a native wasp to Colorado, fairly common, and it could not sting you if it tried. Oh, it couldn't even sting you. Now, I think of hornets as all one thing, but there are different kinds of hornets. Oh, we have wasps is one of the most diverse groups of insects that we have in the world, and there are so many, many different species. Wasps and hornets interchangeable? They are not. Hornets are a type of wasp. Okay. Now, the photo we got, it's a big wasp. What was it called again? A pigeon tremex. Pigeon tremex. Mm -hmm. Despite its size, which is terrifying, it's not likely to be a threat. 
there are other formidable wasps in Colorado. Yes. And let me throw in why the pigeon tremex is not a threat. So they're a large wasp and they have, the females have what looks like a long stinger, but that stinger is actually called an ovipositor, which is used to lay eggs. And she has a specialized ovipositor that is used to drill in the bark of wood for her to lay eggs in dead and dying trees. So they actually don't harm trees either. Um, They're just another solitary wasp in our garden ecosystems. And the other wasp that gets confused a lot with the Asian giant hornet is called the cicada killer. Now the cicada killer, um, it, it looks big and scary, but it's also a solitary wasp that specializes in hunting cicadas. So unless you're a cicada, you don't really have to worry. They could sting you, but they they keep to themselves. Um, They don't want anything to do with people. So it would be really difficult to get stung by a, a cicada killer. Now, what is a murder hornet? And have there been any confirmed sightings of them in Colorado? No confirmed sightings. The murder hornet is known as the Asian giant hornet. And a small number of individuals were found in Washington state. Entomologists there are working very hard to eradicate them in Washington so they don't spread in that area. It's a serious issue where in Washington, but here in Colorado, we don't have to worry about it because they will not be able to survive the climate in Colorado and they would have to be able to get here. Um, And there's some obstacles in their way, for example, like the Rocky Mountains. Um, They would not be able to travel like that. So not an issue. Okay. Why are they called murder hornets? Who are they murdering? That's a great question. Um, That is a a common name. The Asian giant hornet predates on other insects. They're opportunistic, so they're going to feed on a, a wide variety of insects. Many, many other wasps and also many, many other insects also prey on other insects. So the term murder hornet is a little bit misleading. Why are they so scary, though? And in Washington, you say they really are trying to eradicate them. I know bees have something to do with it. Yes, well, they are an invasive species. So invasive species don't have the checks and balances to keep their population in check. So that's one reason. Um, The other reason is if they felt their nest was threatened, they can sting you and they would defend their nest. So that could be a potentially dangerous situation. In terms of bees, you know, a lot of the media coverage has talked about how they could decimate a honeybee colony. And if there was an Asian giant hornet colony nearby, some beehives, absolutely, they would be detrimental to those beehives, but they don't seek out honeybees specifically. Mm. So they're going to prey on a wide variety of other insects. So really, the Asian giant hornet is not the biggest threat to honeybees. Honeybees have a, a whole host of other issues, you know, the most serious being probably the varroa mite. Now, you said the Asian giant hornet, uh, in addition to having to cross the Rockies, which is not likely, would not thrive in the climate here. What is it about our climate that is inhospitable? We're too dry. And also, we're higher elevation, too. So um, habitat that's just not suitable for them to thrive in. Okay. This has resulted, I understand, though, fear around murder hornets. Uh, It really does sound like, you know, Sharknado. But... um, I understand this has resulted in people killing wasps and hornets unnecessarily. Correct. And one of the most common questions I get about wasps is, 
why do we have wasps? What is their role in the ecosystem? And really wasps do us a huge favor. They prey on pest insects and even the pesky yellow jacket that sometimes can be very aggressive. Um, they're actually scavengers. So they're essentially the ecosystem cleanup crew in our environment. So wasps do play an important role. And with the amount of diversity we have, the vast majority of wasps are solitary. They do their own thing. They, they want nothing to do with other people. We only have a couple of nuisance species that really, you know, sort of give wasps a bad reputation for all wasps. But that simply is not true. Yes, but of course, when a wasp is antagonizing me, uh, I have to make a split second decision, you know, whether to, uh, how do I put this poetically, eliminate... <laughs> Sure, sure. Or, you know, and so I know you're calling for subtlety, but that's very difficult at a picnic. Well, yes. And, you know, those wasps that are flying around your picnic are, I would I would put money that they're the Western yellow jackets. Those are our scavenging wasps and they, they can be aggressive and they can sting you more than once as well. Um, they're actually responsible for 90% or more of the stings uh, in Colorado. So they are the aggressive one. They, they're a native insect, um, but when human interactions and yellow jackets interact. Um, that's never a good thing. So there are control options as necessary. Okay. What do you do if you see a wasp? What do you do? You know, well, it depends on what kind. Um, usually I just stay calm and let it do its thing. You know, if you stay calm, they're more likely to stay calm. Um, if it's a yellow jacket, I try to keep it away um, and everything. But if it's a solitary wasp, Honestly, I'm going to go take pictures of it because um, solitary wasps, they're a low sting risk and they're a fascinating group of wasps. They hunt spiders and caterpillars and crickets and they it would be so difficult to get stung by one of those. You would really have to actively try. And if I want to tell the difference between a solitary wasp and these more menacing types that are likely to sting me, what would I look out for? Really, the best thing to look for is the black and yellow patterns. If the insect does not have hairs on its body, it's likely not going to be a bee. And if it's flying around, um, you know, human food sources uh, like picnics and trash cans, um, it is most likely going to be the Western yellow jacket. So you are not uh, losing sleep over the so-called murder hornet. That's just not something that bothers you in Colorado. Not in Colorado, no. Lisa, thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Lisa Mason is a CSU Extension agent in Fort Collins who specializes in native bees, other pollinators, other insects, and citizen science, helping us confirm that a listener did not, I repeat, did not spot a murder hornet in Denver. But the whole affair has allowed us to shed light on wasps and hornets in general. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour as we honor a Colorado Springs neighborhood that was wiped off the map, but not from people's memories. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Colorado Public Radio thanks Prestige Imports, Porsche Audi, for their support and the use of an Audi Q5. Giving the CPR Newsroom a vehicle to get to breaking news and follow stories across Colorado. Find out more at CPR.org.
It's Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. We took the show on the road recently, two weeks covering both sides of the Continental Divide through big cities and small towns. And we brought stuff back with us. And I don't mean snow globes or collectible spoons, but stories, stories we couldn't fit in. And this next one is from Colorado Springs, reported by CPR's Dan Boyce. Hi, Dan. Hello, Ryan. Yeah, this story, it's about America the Beautiful Park. Oh, that green space, uh, like in the heart of downtown. That's right. I I think of it as being kind of the flagship park for the city. It's bordered by Monument Creek to the west and then a wide section of railroad tracks on the east. There's a stunning sculptural steel bridge that just opened, which takes pedestrians from the park across those train tracks to the new U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Museum. It really is a beautiful community asset. However, at the same time, this plot of land has a complicated past for the city. Complicated? How so? Well, to put it bluntly, because in the 1990s, the city bulldozed an entire neighborhood to make way for this park. A neighborhood made up almost completely of working class immigrant and minority folks. Now, most of those people were long gone in the 90s, and the neighborhood had long fallen into a state of legitimate disrepair. But I met Leah Davis-Witherow at the park to talk about this on a gorgeous summer day. She's a historian and curator at the Colorado Springs Pioneers Museum. She recently compiled a permanent exhibit at the museum about this area, which used to be known as the Conejos neighborhood. In a way, this space is hollowed ground. So for decades, starting from the 1880s until the neighborhood was removed in the 1990s. This was a vibrant neighborhood. And it started out always as a sort of working class neighborhood, folks that worked on the railroad or worked in the brickyards. It was the site of our first Jewish institution in Colorado Springs. The Sons of Abraham Synagogue was here in, in this neighborhood. And in the 1920s and 1930s, it began to draw Hispano peoples from southern Colorado and northern New Mexico who were moving here, both fleeing the Mexican Revolution and also looking for opportunities, social, political, economic opportunities for themselves and their families. It's kind of hard for me to depict how small this neighborhood must have been because I walk into this park and it looks like, you know, a great size for a park you could probably have a pretty good soccer game uh, in this field, but to imagine so many families living here, it must have been really tightly packed in. It was. So the park is about 16 acres, and it's deceiving, right, because it's open. We have this beautiful grassy plain. So if we were standing in this exact spot in, say, 1935 or 37, we would be looking at the Rio Grande grocery store, the heart of this neighborhood, operated by Severiano or Sam Malena and his wife Rosa and their family. He was like a father figure in this neighborhood. He was connected to every family. If we would have walked north or south on Conejos, we would have house by house by house would have occupied by families whose kids went to nearby schools, whose dads worked in nearby industries, and whose moms cooked homemade meals. This space was vibrant, and when we look at it today, although it is arguably really beautiful, it lacks the energy and it lacks the connection to the past. Seeing as this was an isolated, multicultural neighborhood for decades, what was its 
reputation in the city? Sure. Well, one of the challenges of this neighborhood is that it was out of sight, out of mind. I think about, uh, first of all, I think about the sound of living in this neighborhood in the 1930s or 40s. The railroad tracks are right there, bisecting this area, cutting folks off here. They had they couldn't safely go east unless they went up the viaduct or down and around. So um, this neighborhood is noisy. We have the creek on the west, and then soon we'll have I-25 in the 1950s, or they called it the Monument Valley Freeway back then. Now, something important about freeways is we know as a country, historically, these went through largely African-American or immigrant neighborhoods. They didn't go through wealthy neighborhoods. And because they're out of sight, out of mind, and because largely of the working class Hispano and black populations here, they are not top of mind for the movers and shakers, the decision makers in Colorado Springs. So over succeeding decades, this neighborhood lacked the sort of infrastructure improvements that other neighborhoods got. Things like street lamps and sidewalks and paved roads. And over time, the neighborhood became blighted. And then local officials used that blight and neglect as an excuse to tear this neighborhood down in the 1990s. It was consciously neglected by people who could have made decisions to provide the improvements that would mean that this neighborhood remained vibrant and vital. So their solution is to put in a park in this space. And I have to tell you, you know, reaction from Conejos neighbors or people that used to live here is really mixed. Some people are angry that their neighborhood was destroyed and that this, that they put a park right on top of it. Other people actually like the fact that once again this is a place that draws families and there's music and there's happiness and and that brings them some sense of joy but it depends on who you talk to. So as we well know uh, the city this year celebrated its 150th anniversary the the very uh, fun to say sesquicentennial. (laughs) As we're standing here at this park in this place at this time as a historian what do you think the biggest takeaway is when we look at the history of the Conejos neighborhood. This this story, Conejos, this neighborhood, these people represent authentic Colorado Springs history. And we can't just talk about the great achievements or Pikes Peak or we, we have to talk about how some of our challenges in our past and the people that helped build the city. And when we're talking about people that lived in the Conejos neighborhood, they ran the trains, they worked on the tracks, they built the buildings, they hauled the trash. These are people that that literally built Colorado Springs and they're important. And we can't understand Colorado Springs unless we include Conejos and lots of other stories that have been left out in the past. And it's more important than ever to have a more inclusive, complex, complete understanding of our history. Otherwise, we're just marketing. From the Colorado Springs Pioneers Museum, that's curator Leah Davis-Witherow, speaking with our Southern Colorado reporter, Dan Boyce. Dan, you also met a former Conejos resident at this same park. Yeah. After I spoke with Davis Witherow, we were joined by 82-year-old Josie Ontiveros. She grew up here in the 1930s and 40s. And Ryan, she's simply incredible. She is sharp as a tack. And she was really essential in putting together this Conejos neighborhood exhibit at the museum She was even able to hand draw a map of the entire neighborhood 
for Davis Witherow, complete with uh, which families lived in which homes. Oh my goodness, what a memory. Yeah, I'm jealous, frankly. So she met us toward the north end of the park, very close to where her childhood home used to be. They were houses that belonged to the railroad. What did they look like? They were yellow, and you're too young to remember that, but in every railroad, the places that had railroads, their houses were always yellow. And every year they would come and paint our houses yellow. It was always inside and outside, it was always yellow. But we got to live there because my father worked for the DNRG Railroad, and there was a group of men, and he had more seniority than anyone. So whoever had the highest seniority would get to live in that house. I was born right here off the ramp there that was Cuchara Street. When I was six years old, we were able to move into that house. It was rent-free. We paid utilities, no water. Uh, the outhouse was outside. And uh, I lived there till 1956. And now all we see is oh. just open grass and oh, trees and bushes. And, trees. and this was the park. The park was right next to the store. Well, Tell me about the character of the neighborhood, what it felt like to oh, grow up here. I, if I had to do it again, I would. I would. That's, you know, it's, uh, and then we knew all the neighbors. I could tell you the name of all the neighbors all the way to Cachadas. And it looked so small. Now I say, how did all these houses fit there? And everybody here was Latino except for, oh, I'd say, uh, the lady in the corner, Miss Ruth. She was uh, African-American. And then there was... Um, uh, a lady between the store and the park. Her name was Rosie, and she also was African-American. Everybody knew everybody. Everybody could say, well, I need some sugar. I'm going next door and ask Mrs. So-and-so, could I borrow a cup of sugar? Could I borrow a cup of coffee? And we would all, you know, uh, help each other. We never had to put the blinds down. We never had to lock the doors. You say you left here in the 1950s, the neighborhood? 1956. You were still living in Colorado Springs oh, when the city made its decision to kind oh, yeah, of demolish the rest of, of the neighborhood and yes. turn it into a park. Yes. Um, what was that time like for you, and what were your feelings as you went sad, through that time? Sad, sad, And especially when they start saying they weren't going to call it Conejos Park anymore. It was going to be Confluence Park. And then uh, they changed it to America the Beautiful, which is it is beautiful, but... I th to me, it was Conejos Park. It should have stayed Conejos Park. I wonder if at some point did you just worry about your story being forgotten? Yeah, especially when they renamed everything. I said, well, you know, we're, you know, we're, we didn't exist to some people. But we did. <laughs> we did. And, yeah, I worried a lot, too, because all these people that were moving... They were already older, and they had to relocate, and and I don't know, uh, you know, we moved, so I don't know, and we lost track of a lot of these older people then, and and their kids, and and everyone. Uh, so yeah, and you wonder, well, why, why, why did you do it? But instead of maybe remodeling the homes, or, but they just felt that I don't know, I don't know what they felt, but it was destroyed. It is a picturesque place we're standing here now. Yes. But how do you feel about it all now that we're, we're standing here today? I think it's beautiful, but I never come. 
I never come here. Uh-uh. In fact, I bought a, well, you got my purse. I got a bunch of Kleenexes. I said, oh, my God, I'm going to sit here and cry because I could see myself with my mom and dad. And well, there was a big yard, nothing but dirt. And all these neighbors would, oh, they're out there. So we'd all go out there and we'd play. We'd have a good time. And then about 8 o'clock, it was time for us to go in. And they'd come in. It was just a community that everybody got along with everybody. Everybody knew everybody. Everybody, just a real, real close community. And then for them just to come and it was gone. It was gone. It was, it was hard to believe, but it did happen. <laughs> yep. Ryan, you can hear Josie Ontiveros actually did get a bit choked up there at the end of our interview. But she quickly composed herself and said, you know what? When this land was our neighborhood, a lot of beautiful memories were formed. The way it is now, beautiful memories are being formed for the people who spend time here today. Hmm. And then someday this land will have another use. And um, one more thing, Ryan, if you ever do walk around America the Beautiful Park, there is still one building left from its time as the Conejos neighborhood. Just one. It's the Chadbourne Community Church still stands at the park's south end, and it is still an operating church. It's been there for more than a century. Dan, thank you for this. You're welcome, Ryan. CPR Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce. When I was in Southern Colorado last month, I got to spend a Sunday in Pueblo to see the new murals along the levee, to sip coffee on Main Street. I also stopped by a grocery store, and the clerk had one thing on her mind, the future of the power plant in town. There is once again discussion of Pueblo going nuclear. Miguel Otarola from our climate team reports. It's likely that no one in Pueblo believes more in nuclear energy than Don Banner. He tried to build a nuclear power plant just outside of town 10 years ago, but faced so much backlash from the community that county commissioners ended up voting against the project. Had they done it, Pueblo County would have been a leading county in the state by now 10 years later. We would have had a nuclear power plant. His timing couldn't have been worse. A month before a crucial vote, a nuclear plant in Fukushima, Japan, was destroyed by an earthquake and tsunami. But Banner is 76 now, and county commissioners are talking about bringing nuclear energy to Pueblo all over again. It's just one of several options that leaders here are raising after they learned the Comanche coal plant will close decades earlier than expected. They've started talking about what Pueblo's future will look like once it gets rid of the largest single source of greenhouse gas emissions in the state. Have you ever ridden in an electric car? No. You hit the gas and boom, it'll snap your neck. Pueblo Mayor Nick Gratisar has his own dream for what was once known as a steel city. Uh, There's no reason why Pueblo can't be the renewable energy capital of the world. It's a bold claim for sure, but in some ways, Pueblo's reputation as a land of steel and coal is outdated. The county has become a major hub for renewables. A wind tower plant opened here more than 10 years ago and was recently sold to a South Korean company. It's being billed as their entry into the U.S. wind market. Solar projects have also popped up. Workers right now are installing hundreds of rows of solar panels just south of the Comanche station, which is run by Excel Energy. When they're finished at the end of the year, it'll add 240 megawatts of power to Excel's grid. Will Baker, the vice president of rail products for the Everest Steel Mill, says energy from that solar project will help power a new mill that makes longer railroad tracks. Uh, The facility here, when that's up and running at peak volumes, uh, we believe that the majority of the electricity is going to come from that, and that's what's going to help make our steel. It's the kind of project Mayor Gratisar says he wants to see more of. 
It's good for jobs, good for the local economy, and good for the environment. But renewables do have drawbacks. Mainly, they don't run all the time. In order to make them work for large projects, Gratisar says they would need to see advances in battery storage. Nuclear energy, on the other hand, doesn't have that problem. Like coal, it can provide round-the-clock power that Pueblo and other cities could tap into. Come on in. Commissioner, how are you? I'm doing good. County Commissioner Chris Wiseman is intrigued by nuclear's potential. He says he'd like to know whether it would be possible to retrofit the Comanche station to generate nuclear power. We're not going to get this done just with, you know, wind and solar. Uh, We need to have a lot of tools in our tool bag in order to be successful and, and compete in a world economy. Elected officials are divided about having a nuclear power plant. Right now, Comanche doesn't provide any electricity to Pueblo, and Gratisar is worried the same thing will happen if Excel runs the nuclear plant. Others don't see nuclear energy as clean energy because of the radioactive byproduct. If you can hold on one second, I'll go get it. Don Banner, the local attorney, knows all about the controversy behind nuclear. He showed me an editorial that ran in the local paper the day before our interview. We support a nuclear-free Pueblo. He still believes that nuclear power is the safest form of energy production and could provide enough jobs and tax revenues to support the city. He thinks the idea should go up for a public vote. And if 60% of the people say it, no, under no circumstances, then you just drop it because without the political support, it's not going to happen. Nuclear power plants do come with a bad reputation, a result of their radioactive waste and disasters in Fukushima, Chernobyl, and Three Mile Island. They also cost billions of dollars to build, with costs rising as safety standards have tightened. Whether or not nuclear energy is in Pueblo's future, renewables are in its present. A 2019 study from the Colorado School of Mines said the city is actually ahead of the curve, and it's a case study for other cities that will also have to figure out what to do when they get rid of coal. Excel, the state's biggest utility, is on track to increase wind and solar. If that continues, the study says it can mean cheaper electricity and more private investment and jobs for Pueblo. You can already see the renewables in action here. Fields of solar panels are glowing under the summer sun, an aging coal plant towering in the distance. I'm Miguel Otarola, CPR News. Dotted across Colorado are old mines and wells in need of expensive cleanup and no company left to pony up. But Congress might soon send the state money for mitigation, CPR's Caitlin Kim reports. This summer, I followed Adams County officials around the northern part of their county, where signs of the oil and gas industry were in every field. I had no idea where we were as we turned down a dirt road and stopped next to green number two. It's a well that was orphaned in 2017 and is in the process of being cleaned up by the state. The pump jack was removed in July, but there's still a couple of empty tanks standing, one with a rusted door swung wide open. Greg Dean is the oil and gas liaison for the county. When they removed the pump jack, they discovered historical leaks of produced water and oil into the soil and groundwater out in that field. So they're still doing sampling to see what the extent of that impact is. But this is a prime example of what an orphan site can do in Adams County. There are 77 orphaned wells in Adams County alone. Adams County Commissioner Emma Pinter understands that the oil and gas industry is big business in her county. And we know that there are a lot of companies that employ a lot of our residents. And we want to make sure that as we have that economic vitality, we are also caring for the public health and the safety of our residents. And those things need to go hand in hand. They're pleased with the work the state is doing to clean up these wells, but it's not cheap. 
Dean says the average cost to plug an orphan well properly is around $85,000. In total, that could be almost $7 million in Adams County alone. And right now, the state's left picking up that tab. I'm frustrated. Pinter explains that an orphan well is one that has been abandoned by a company that no longer operates in Colorado. I feel like the analogy that keeps coming to mind is you, you go out to lunch with a couple of friends and you know you're going to have to pay the bill eventually. And as you look around, like two or three of your friends have slipped out the back and the rest of you are picking up the bill. But another guest may soon join the table. The bipartisan infrastructure bill that Congress may pass later this month contains more than $4.5 billion for plugging and remediating orphaned and abandoned oil and gas wells. But that still may not be enough for the scope of the problem. It could be upwards of 50 to 80 million just in Colorado. And that's if there aren't any extra wells added to the orphan well list. Colorado has more than 250 orphan wells that need to be plugged, and more than twice that where sites need to be remediated. The bipartisan infrastructure bill doesn't just deal with the oil and gas legacy. It also contains billions for mine cleanup. That's funding that could come in handy for Jason Willis. He's with Trout Unlimited, a nonprofit working to preserve watersheds. His current project is past the old mining town of Bonanza, just north of the San Luis Valley. Halfway up a very rocky and bumpy road, Willis meets with his contractor to get an update about moving a stream. It's just becoming natural. It's actually really actually that natural bend that we wanted. Yep. I'm making it a little bigger for because I did walk all the way to the mine. I went. Willis says they're the trying to move the water away from mine waste. This is the fourth phase of cleanup, and I'm pulling I'm pulling funds from five to six different sources. A grant from the Colorado Healthy Rivers Fund, private funding from local companies, including a mining company, and some U.S. Forest Service money, all to clean up mine waste, stop it from leaking into the watershed, and rehabilitate the surrounding landscape. And all because there's no company left to take responsibility. So then it's left to the taxpayers or the federal government or you know organizations like ours that go out and raise money to do these cleanups. Trout Unlimited, working in partnership with state and federal agencies, does about three to seven cleanup projects like this a year. Jeff Graves is program director for the state's inactive mine reclamation program. He says the infrastructure bill could send the state more than $10 million a year for the next 15 years to deal with old coal mines. It's less certain how much the state would get for hard rock mine cleanup. But either way, Graves is excited about the prospects to really tackle coal and hard rock sites in Colorado. I think it has a lot of potential uh, to address a lot of these issues that we've really only been able to nibble at the edges on in some areas. Almost everyone agrees putting federal funds into cleaning up these historic problems is a good thing. But this money, if it makes it into law, is not going to be a panacea. It's a first step. There are other steps, people argue, that also need to be taken to make cleanups easier and prevent problems in the future. When it comes to oil and gas, Greg Dean from Adams County wants to see bonding reform. He says it's about ensuring companies are truly meeting the future cost to plug an abandoned well. Um, so in the past, a well would only require a $5,000 bond. So they would have to submit a $5,000 bond to the state to drill this well, where we know that the cost to plug an abandoned well is 85000 Forfeit the bond or pay to plug. You do the math. Dean also doesn't want the orphan well program used as a way to dump unwanted assets onto the state. When it comes to mines, 
Maya McAmer would like to see Congress pass Good Samaritan laws to protect groups like hers from liability risks. McAmer is director of the Boulder Watershed Collective and has worked with Trout Unlimited on mine waste cleanup projects. And I think there are a lot of smaller nonprofits and watershed groups that, that might be willing to do more of this work should there be more robust Good Samaritan coverage and funding that goes along with it. But since many of these mines deal with water, it also means dealing with the Clean Water Act, something McAmer says is scary. And it's not something Congress is likely to agree on changing. Still, for McAmer, who grew up in Boulder playing in and around old mines, she sees the federal dollars in the infrastructure bill as helping the area come full circle. The history of mining is really compelling for a lot of the people who live around here. And so there's kind of this balance between that history um, and the damaging processes that came out of that time. But I feel like this is a great way of like kind of finishing the story. You know, that it, it all comes back around, and although it was causing issues in the watershed, now we're, now we're really looking at restoring that. For both abandoned mines and orphan wells, there are long cleanup lists in the state. All involved hope the federal infusion of cash, if it comes, will help them go through those lists faster. In Washington, D.C., I'm Caitlin Kim, CPR News. And that's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for spending time with us, and thanks to our team. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.